This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. You're listening to episode 106. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rkraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Jake Taylor, CEO of Farnham Street Investments and author of The Rebel Allocator. I invited Jake on because I wanted to learn more about why he decided to write his book, The Rebel Allocator, and as well as really discuss some key takeaways from the book, learn more about Farnham Street's investing philosophy, and some of the insights he's learned from his own podcast that he hosts called 5GQ and Hikecast. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 106 of the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my interview with Jake Taylor. But first, a word from our sponsor. To my loyal listeners, subscribers, and fans, Robert Kraft here, your host on the Planet Microcap podcast. The 2020 investor conference season is upon us. Where are you going this year? I'd like to take a second to invite you to join me, maybe a few of the guests you've heard on this podcast, to our annual Microcap Investor Conference, the Planet Microcap Showcase, April 21st through 23rd, 2020 at Bally's Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. The Planet Microcap Showcase will be two and a half days of company presentations, networking opportunities, an educational workshop, and you will get to meet privately in one-on-one meetings with management of well-known emerging growth private and publicly traded microcap companies. We are back with new surprises and programming that you will not want to miss. So join us for the Planet Microcap Showcase, April 21 through 23, 2020 at Bally's Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. For more information and register to attend, please visit www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com. See you in Vegas. This is Robert Kraft, and I'm your host on the Planet Microcap podcast. And with me today is a very special guest, Mr. Jake Taylor. He is the CEO of Farnham Street and the author of The Rebel Allocator. Jake, welcome to the Planet Microcap podcast. It's a pleasure being here, Robert. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you on. So uh, to, to get started here, as we do with each podcast, you know, I want to get your background. Like, I really want to know what, what led to where you're currently at today. Sure. Uh, it's a little bit of a, a circuitous route, I would say. Um, <clears throat> you know, I got an undergrad degree in economics and I had uh, my my family before my my father and my grandfather both had worked in the energy industry were um, actually for PG&E, which is the electric utility uh, for most of Northern California. And so I grew up climbing around on uh, dams and, you know, wandering around through power plants and stuff. So I was always into it. And uh, I happened to get a job right out of college 
at the California ISO, which is the it's a company that runs the electric grid for the all of the state of California and, and does the market uh, for bulk electricity. So my my economics degree and my interest in energy helped me get my foot in the door there. Um, and I did that for uh, actually 12 years in total. But while I was there, I wa wasn't sure what I wanted to do exactly with my life. Uh, it was a great job, but I got uh, into the MBA program at UC Davis. And my thought process there was like, well, if I want to go into management, this keeps my options open. And w my first year of going into the MBA program, I happened to win this lottery to go back to Omaha and have lunch with Warren Buffett. And, uh, sorry, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm hearing, uh, I read, you know, for those that don't know, I, I read, uh, I'm, I'm almost finished with rebel allocator and I'm hearing many, many synergies already. This, yeah. This well, they, they, they say to write what you know. So they've tried to, <laughs> I tried to include some things in there that at least that I've actually done in life. Um, so <laughs> I, uh, I, I got, uh, got to meet Mr. Buffett and you know, he was as advertised was incredible. And up until that time, I'd, I'd been into saving and investing and kind of business, but I, I wouldn't say that I really had a framework. Um, and after I learned more about Buffett after the trip, because I was like, gosh, how's this guy? He's so smart. How did he figure all this stuff out? Uh, I recognized that, oh, I, I'd been a value investor my whole life. I just didn't know that's what it was called. I loved getting a deal. I loved buying something on Craigslist and selling it somewhere else, like an arbitrage. Uh, I was always messing around with that kind of stuff. I just didn't know that that's what had a it had a term for when you did it when you were buying shares of businesses. Um, so when Buffett says that it takes it like an inoculation, for me it was that inoculation. You know, it was just right away. It made perfect sense to me, and it it made it whereas it's hard for me to imagine doing it any other way and feeling like I would be logical. Well, you know what's interesting about that point is you're not the first person I've talked to on the podcast that had a very similar experience where they, that that's just how they were and they didn't realize it was called a value investor. Like Jeff Gannon from uh, Focus Compounding, I, I remember he, he said the same thing, he had the exact same experience as you did. But yeah, yeah. well, and I think it's because uh, it, it stems from first principles of, you know, a lot of, there's lots of engineering concepts to value investing, whether it's margin of safety, mm -hmm. um, you, you know, you're just, of course, if you can get a deal on something that that probably lowers your risk and potentially increases your your reward. Mm. So I have to ask, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm sure my audience just really has to know. So t tell us a little bit more about that that first lunch meeting with Mr. Buffett. I mean, what was that like? To, I, I have to know. I, I, it's, a, yeah. it's an opportunity of a lifetime. So you, you travel into into Omaha and you get in in the morning and then we took a bus and there were, I think, 25 of us from Davis. And there was another school there also that was meeting at the same time. So uh, Buffett will bring in multiple schools at the same time. And you go to Berkshire headquarters, you know, take the elevator up in groups and um, you get you go in and you sit in this uh, kind of bigger meeting room uh, and, and all the chairs are facing up towards this podium. And there's cokes all along the wall uh lined up if you want to have a coke uh for breakfast <laughs> and uh, oh, a diet coke i guess yeah yeah, yeah there's diet coke too, yeah. Uh, and you know he he kind of shuffles his way out of the out of some back room to the podium and he does this whole one billion two billion three billion uh joke that he does every time he gets in front of a microphone and he he gave the like maybe five minutes of prepared 
uh, speech. And then after that, it was just Q&A. And, you know, for probably a good two hours, he just kept taking questions. And uh, and then after that, we all traveled uh, to Garat's, which is the his favorite steakhouse in Omaha. And uh, he he bought us all lunch and oh, and it. he wandered around the tables like talking to people. Um, and then after that, he he went outside and out in the parking lot, he took a picture with everybody. Uh, if you you know could get an individual picture. Uh, quick story on that that's kind of funny. Uh, not funny at the time, but so we had we we had two cameras going to take the pictures, and <clears throat> it was my turn, and you know I'm getting all buddy buddy with him and. The, I look I, the I look at the first picture I get it uh, later after and oh man they cut my face in half dang it well good thing we have a second one well I look at the second one and they they'd actually cut his face in half so did you like I, have I, to <laughs> well, I I looked into trying to like can I like you know uh, Photoshop these together somehow, but it would like turn us both into looking like aliens. So it didn't work out. I, I find it to be very funny at the time, but that took about 10 years before I was, I was pretty salty about it for a long time. <laughs> but, uh, what they say that, uh, tragedy plus time equals comedy. And I think that's, 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 that's true good. in this case. Oh, that's for sure. Well, I have to ask too, did, did you get a tap on the shoulder from, you know, his assistant afterwards and to, to, you know, talk a little bit more about a special project? <laughs> no, that uh, definitely uh, reality differed from fiction at that point. <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to be th dropping a lot of Rebel Allocator references. I highly recommend everybody go read it. It's actually a great read. I, I really enjoyed every minute. I'm still about halfway through, but I'm just I'm I'm really loving it. Um, I appreciate that. No, for sure. So from from that meeting, that humble meeting with Mr. Buffett in, in Omaha, I'm assuming. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> What then led you to start Farnham Street and then also uh, write The Rebel Allocator? So I was um, – at the time, my boss at the energy place was actually a big Warren Buffett fan as well. And he was leaving to start his own Buffett-inspired partnership, uh, identical uh, partnership that Buffett started in the, the late 50s. And I, I asked him, well, can I – just be an intern at your your fund and like I'll sweep the floor. You don't have to pay me. I'll just show up. And he was like, yeah, of course. So I spent the next year basically, uh, you know, learning a ton from someone who had been studying all this stuff for a decade already. So it was a huge advantage to to uh, work with someone who was so good. And, and I would be I was still in the MBA program and I would be reading a lot of things that you know, that were part of my hedge fund in internship and maybe sometimes to the exclusion of my, my business school readings, <laughs> but it was just more interesting. Uh, but I would be sitting in class a lot and I would think, gosh, I'm, I'm learning all this stuff about business in my internship. And it's almost saying the exact opposite of a lot of the things that I'm learning in my business school. Like why are these things disconnected? Um, and I, I eventually talked that person, uh, in my, my boss at the internship into teaching a class with me at Davis um, and kind of a way for me to get credits for the same time that I'm doing my internship, trying to double dip, you know? Yep. And, uh, you know, we, I had some friends who joined us and I think we had about 15 people who did it that first time. Uh, and it was, it was a value investing class at Davis and that's what we called it. And it was really such a great up learning opportunity to give, uh, to be forced into like creating a curriculum and and then to have to teach it to other people. Um, 
what was amazing was that then after, you know, I graduated and then the next year, some students contacted me and were like, hey, can you, would you possible that you might come back and teach that class again? We heard really good things about it. And we were like, well, okay, I mean, kind of give back to our alma mater or whatever. That's fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had like 30 students. And then the next year, the same thing happened and we had 40. And then the next year it was 60. Um, and then at that point, it started getting a little bit uh, stepping on some toes in the the, the finance department. <laughs> and uh, they they were going to allow us to make it into a real class, but then we would have to show up to faculty meetings and things like that. And uh, we weren't that interested. I mean, we were just, we just wanted to have fun with talking to the students and, Mm -hmm. and, and most of the class was some principles, but then talking about examples that were happening in real time. Um, so for instance, like one of the funnest ones we did was Michael Jackson had recently passed away and we tried to come up with a valuation. Like what is his, what is his catalog worth? What would you pay for it? Mm. Um, this is kind of a, yeah. yeah, I mean, just fun, like discounted cash flow ideas around that. Like, what would be? Um, so, long story short, uh, that that boss that I had at the internship, uh, we liked working together so much that we started Farm Street together, mm-hmm. and folded that that uh, that hedge fund into Farnham Street, and and now we've expanded our service offerings to other things and you know including managing retirement accounts and um various other things. So it's been a really fun ride. Uh you know I I didn't come at it from anything close to the traditional path of you know go work at Goldman and then you know get recruited out of Goldman to start a fund. Right. We just liked what we were doing and uh tried to learn the best we could as we were going along and figure out what made sense and you know we were always one step behind probably from a like regulatory, you know, compliance, trying to figure out like, what do they expect us to be doing here? Because <laughs> we didn't come from that kind of background. But, right. um, but I think it also in a lot, it's an advantage in a lot of ways because you don't then have some of the, the you don't think like everyone else also. Right. So, and so during when you're still interning and also teaching, I mean, you were, you were investing too at the same time, right? Like you, you were actually mm-hmm. going out and putting your money where your mouth is and, and actually doing it. So in, Right. I mean, in essence, you were honing your skills in some sense. Yeah, for sure. Like that was a that was a a, a great time period um, that happened to be uh, the first class we taught was uh, what, 2000 must have been summer of 2009. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we had so wow. many great opportunities like there were we could talk about businesses that were on sale all day long um, and it what's funny i mean it seems funny now being 2020 and the the bull market that we've experienced but in the like the last years it must have been 2011 we um we were starting to feel already like gosh there's not a ton of things that are still on sale like they were um in fact we ended up taking um directing the students towards japan uh, because they had just had the Fukushima uh, event there, mm-hmm. and there were things that were—I mean, there were tons of stuff on on sale in in Japan at that point. So we had them digging around in Japanese uh, filings and uh, looking for looking for deals there. Uh, but yeah, it's it's funny to think I, you kind of long for those days when there were so many <laughs> so many businesses that were on sale. Sure, it sure felt a lot easier than it does today. Oh, That's—I I was going to say that's for sure. Well, you know it from your background and now your teaching experience and working with these students and, and being a part of an MBA program where, you know, I, I, my MBA too. So I totally understand where, where you're coming from, where there seems to be this, this gap between, you know, 
real true value investing in this Buffett idea. And, and, and we covered that a little bit in some of my classes at, at school, but it, that, it, it was really just all about teaching the basics. But mm-hmm. then like, it almost felt like a value investing class was kind of that next level where like, okay, now you have the basics. Well, now this is how you make money. You know, mm, like, yeah. like, like I wish I had that, like that. I mean, luckily I have this and podcasts and my, my own company, but like, if I were just in school without what I have now, I would definitely feel that same frustration. Yeah. I think that was a uh, part, definitely part of it, like kind of a practical application of a lot of the things that, mm-hmm. that people were learning in finance classes. Um, although I do have to say that <laughs> we, we figured out pretty early on that actually like the accounting was uh, woefully underprepared for what was, I mean, they understood it and they could, if I told them like, well, what's depreciation, they could, they could recite the, you know, textbook definition of it, but they didn't know what it meant to an actual business person. Like they didn't know what the cash flow implications were. That was really the biggest part was like, I think the, the, the B school neglected cash flow statements to their own detriment. Um, and we, we had to come in and like we actually created our own little accounting class for one of the days to just try to get them caught up so that we're all speaking the same language and they have a better idea of, you know, what is what's the accounting to the business person? I mean, like, why does this matter? Mm-hmm. Not just can you recite the definition of, you know, this or put it in a T account or something? <laughs> well, it, it I, I said all that, too, because it, it makes so much sense now why you wrote the rebel allocator. I mean, I, I'm not, I, I'm not so sure as to how much of a, a writer you were prior to that, but, uh, here you are now, now yeah. you're, <laughs> there you go. So, so, I mean, from all that experience, what was the main impetus where, did somebody tell you like, dude, you should write a book, like just do it. No, probably the opposite. More like, dude, don't write a book. What are you doing? <laughs> um, no, nah, that's not true. But my, the biggest impetus were, were a couple things. One, um, I was, I felt like I'd learned a lot of interesting things about cap allocation just from studying it in a, in the, you know, in, in investing. And I felt like there wasn't a book that gave that practical kind of application to the, to a business person. I, I mean, there were lots of examples, uh, you know, the outsiders by Will William Thorndike is a, is a fantastic book. One of my all time favorites. And it, it very neatly describes what the, the uh, character of this type of CEO and kind of some of the moves that they would make. But I I don't think you could say that there was the framework that maybe would lend, if you weren't that person, how would I know how to make the right decision then? Mm -hmm. Um, And that was the little gap that I saw in the marketplace of books that I thought, gosh, if I could, if I could fill that and do it successfully and just have that little bit of a nudge to have someone think for themselves, a, a, a decision maker make a little bit better decision that would be a pretty cool thing to impact the world if i even though it's totally you know i can't measure it and i i won't get any credit for it and that's fine but if if the idea stuck that they made a little bit better decision and maybe some project that shouldn't have been funded doesn't get funded or maybe a, a buyback at a stupid price doesn't happen or a uh, an ego-driven M&A event doesn't happen and people don't get laid off when they shouldn't have. Like It can echo out into a lot of places. Uh, and I thought that'd be a cool little pebble to throw into the, into the pond and see where it ripples. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So let's, I really wanted to dig into the book a little bit. You know, it's been out now for a year. So if you haven't read it, you know, spoiler warning, but uh, th- there's, <laughs> there, but there's so much in there that I don't think it's even really possible to spoil it. 
Um, if anything, I, I hope some of the things that we talk about today will get you excited to want to go and, and buy the book and, and give it a read. Um, but so real quick story follows our main character is Nick, AKA Jake. Uh, well, no, Nick and <laughs> some uh, of it, yeah, <laughs> some of it. And, uh, he's a journalist background. He went to go work for, uh, uh, uh basically a hedge fund kind it's of private equity, private yeah. equity, right. Uh, private equity situation. And, um, he won a lottery to go and ha- and meet with this billionaire, uh, Mr. X. And, uh, he tells him his journalist background, asks some good questions, and basically they offer him a special project to write, firstly, a profile about him, and then hopefully that would lead to a biography, you know, long form biography about him. This is too. So you funny. get, like, you I'm, get a, I'm like reading it back to you. This is too. You, <laughs> so you get a, you get a, a little bit of insight on in, as to how unoriginal I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, look, we're just waiting for part two. You know, we can't wait to hear that that Oof. that version. Um, but <laughs> but. Basically, he's writing this book or writing this profile and he's learning all these lessons from Mr. X. And that's really the meat and potatoes of the book. So I wanted to go through a couple of them. And really the main one that you work off or Mr. X works off of when teaching Nick about different business principles and how Cootie Burger became aka in and out. Uh, <laughs> well, when I was reading it, I, I yeah. wanted to have a double-double. And, uh, <laughs> and it, it, he used the, the main, the, the CPV um, uh graph and, and, and model, you know, the CPV being cost, price, and value. So where was that derived from? Is that something you pulled directly from some of your teachings that you did out there? Or was this completely original for the book? Uh, no, I mean, I wish I was smart enough to have like thought about that when I was teaching. Um, but I did, I, the, the, the idea that cost, price, and value have to be in a certain order for, um, for economic sense or, you know, for anything in an, in the economy to persist came from uh, a really underrated book called Nature of Value by Nick Gogarty. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I, I found that book to be brilliant myself, and I'm, I'm always surprised that it's not like listed as one of the better kind of value books um, or any business book for that matter. But in there, he called it the the um, the eco- the rule of economic law or something like that. I'm, I'm butchering it. Um Oh, no, the the law of economic survival. That's what it was. Sorry. And so he he put those into order and I, I kind of was just playing around with them one day, you know, staring at my my notebook. And um, I thought, gosh, you know, there's this is two dimensional right now. You know, it's just kind of linear, like cost, price and value along a along a spectrum. But what if I made it a little bit like deeper dimension and now like created an area with within these things. And that's how it ended up having, you could add, you know, profit and brand as well to the, to the equation because you can see, um, you know, visually then as you move around the price, you can change how much profit or brand building that a company can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to start out there with, I didn't, you know, when you talk about capital allocation, a lot of times people just think that that's like, oh, dividends or buybacks or um, M&A. Well, there's a, that's a very small component of capital allocation. And most of the time and most of the money gets reinvested back into the business. And that's actually where most of the decision making happens and, and the most important decision making, honestly, because that's the part that goes more towards delighting your customers. Mm-hmm. Um, so, 
even if actually like I, I did this for Berkshire one time, uh, just a little example, they, you know, Buffett is considered the greatest cap allocator of all time. But if you look at just purely cash flow, if you just look at pure revenue of the business, so this is money coming in the door, how does it get spent? He's only responsible for about 20% of the money that's coming in the door. The rest is being redeployed by the subs and made those capital allocation decisions on the other 80% are being made by all the subsidiaries below him. So that's why I felt like I needed to start down at the basics of, you know, cost and price and value and how does it interact with your customer? And then we can build our way up toward all the way up to buybacks and dividends and, and, uh, and the like. It's, it's interesting because, well, there's two points I wanted to go from on, on that. First, just more recently, I, I forget exactly what chapter, but um, where Mr. X was teaching Nick about how, you know, you start off at the family level and then it, you keep moving up and how um, at each level there's a way in which that if we're all on the same page in terms of our capital allocation, that will reflect at each level in the business. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, yeah. There's almost a like a, a fractal nature to it, mm -hmm. um, where you know, like, or or little like uh, those little Russian stacking dolls, where right. like if we do the little one right, and then the little bit bigger one fits, and the little bit bigger one above that fits, um, and and theoretically they should all mesh together. Well, it goes beyond culture. It comes down to just actual fundamentals of our business. You know, if you're doing it right at the at the very you know at the smallest level you know, that should also be how it is at the, at the highest level. Yeah. And that's, I, I think when I've been, I see a lot of businesses nowadays that are not profitable. And I understand the argument that at some point they're going to reach some scale where, uh, the fixed costs that are, are weighing down the profitability will be spread amongst enough customers to then they should be profitable. However, I, I am a little skeptical that that's true for all of these businesses and some of the unit economics that I see, which is really that, that cost, price and value, like you could call that unit economics. Um, it It's a little bit troubling uh, for some of the ones that, that I see where it's like, well, you know, we're we're losing a little bit on every single one, but we're they're trying to make it up in volume. Right. <laughs> well, I'm just I'm already doing the triangle in my head where it's like, OK, well, if the triangle goes this way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. I, so the other point that I want to bring up that you mentioned a little bit uh, just earlier is is the idea of this zero based budgeting. I just mm -hmm. I, was, I was really digging that whole theory. I mean, it, it just it makes so much sense. And the part that I think gets lost on most business owners from what, what I've seen in, you know, talking, doing my interviews with CEOs over the years is that there's that lack of ruthlessness when it comes to look, if this is not adding value to your customer's experience, just drop it. You know, like, I, I, are, do you see that on just a daily basis? And that's why you wanted to include it in here? Uh, I mean, that, that came from, um, so 3G is famous for using zero-based budgeting, mm -hmm. uh, and they actually got it from this book uh, by Bob Pfeiffer called How to Double Your Profits in Six Months or Less. And it, it, I, his, the credit goes to Bob because the, the really important thing there is not so much like you're not just chopping budgets, but what you're doing is you're making sure that the, you have enough resources to do the things that you need to do to make your customer happy. And when it's, you know, when the, when that resource is going towards the private plane of the, of the CEO or 
artwork in their office. None of that is doing anything to make the customer happy. Uh, and that would be then what Bob would call non-strategic expense. Um, and you, what you're really trying to do is, is cut the fat to leave muscle that can then be exercised to, to really make the customer happy. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I just have to ask, are you a shareholder in either 3G or Berkshire? Um, I, yes. Okay, <laughs> good. Actually, I found, I, I, I well, did there's multiple 3G entities to be a shareholder in, so. This, this is true. Yeah. Um, so, um, there's actually a few quotes that I found that I just loved. And the one that had to do with the, with, when it comes to, um, the various levels is, uh, if every family handles their own business smartly, it's likely to work out well for the whole kingdom. I, I might get that tattooed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, that was Adam Smith, I think, right? That was Adam Smith, but, yeah. but, but it, it really, it just, you know, it just made so much sense for, for the book and, and where you had it in there. It just, it worked out great. If you can't raise price, you should focus on controlling costs, obviously. But my favorite was in the long run, everything becomes a toaster. That, yeah. uh, that was my, uh, th okay. That's the tattoo, not, not the, the kingdom <laughs> one. <laughs> I think that one, uh, if I remember right, uh, credit goes to Bruce Greenwald, uh, who's a teacher at, at uh, Columbia, who I think is the one who said that. I don't know if he said it first, but that's where I, where I picked it up from. Well, you know what I, you know what I really loved about the book? And I know, look, I, I, listen, I, I'll take a commission on each book sold if you really want. But what, I really, <laughs> <laughs> but, but what I really loved about the book is you made mention how Buffett makes very difficult concepts simple. But what you did is you actually were able to take those simple concepts and create great anecdotes, simple anecdotes out of them using Nick as your spokesperson. You know, that's that's really what I took from it. And that's that's why I enjoyed reading it so much. Yeah, I um, I, I tried to use uh, Nick as a, a, a foil to ask kind of the questions that we're maybe all embarrassed to ask at this yeah. point. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and and he's so young that he doesn't know any better to be embarrassed about asking those like, well, why is the emperor not wearing any clothes type of questions? Right. Um, and then that then gives Mr. X a chance to boil things down in a way like down to a level that hopefully um, anyone can grasp. Like there's no previous knowledge assumed that you need to to come in to be able to get to pick things up. Mm -hmm. So so with that, you know, I'll, I'll, let's I wanted to move on in the interview to some more of your investment philosophy and uh, just. Because I know you talked about this on Tobias's podcast, but you know I, I love that story that you, you guys talked about when when I guess Munger called Charlie Munger called you to tell you that he loved the book too. Is that that happened? Uh, I don't know if he. I'm not sure it's it's fair to characterize to say that he loved the book. He, <laughs> he did he did call me to talk about the book. What he really called me to do was to encourage me to actually get it made into a movie. Ah. That was his 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 oh. real words. Okay, so that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to ask the follow up from Tobias's interview to that. How's the script coming along? <laughs> uh, it's it's coming along. I, I have somebody who's very passionate about it, uh, who's working on it right now, um, and knows much much more about that world than I do. Mm -hmm. um, it's that type of thing is such a long shot, as you know. I mean, living in in L.A., you know, everybody's got a script, right? And oh, for so sure. it's it's not. Uh, I don't have the highest hopes that, or, you know, I wouldn't assign a high confidence interval that, that Dude, I'm I, sitting next to Munger and eating popcorn with him at any point soon. But, uh, <laughs> but it is kind of my daydream sometimes. Well, dude, I think, I think Adam, this is right up Adam McKay's alley, 
right? I mean, this is this is his follow up to uh to the Big Short. Big short. Yeah. <laughs> so okay, so with that, um, whenever again, it gets Margot Robbie into a bathtub, explaining like cost price value, uh, you know, that's that's fine by me. I, no objection here. So, so, so with that, um, I want to shift now over to Farm Street's investment philosophy. Again, everybody go buy the book, please go and read it. Um, so with that, you know, very simply, what is Farnham Street's investment philosophy? You know, it's actually, I should probably be better at explaining it, but I, I always find it to be a little bit difficult because we really are just trying to do what makes sense to us at any given juncture um, and try not to be too dogmatic about even the flavor of value that we're, we're selecting. Um, so, I, I mean, I'm comfortable buying things that are, have really low price to book that are just, you know, it's cheap. I would, I'm very comfortable buying net nets if I can find them. Uh, I'm comfortable sometimes paying up a little bit for a business that I think is higher quality and has the potential to, to be, a. uh, provide good returns on capital and um, hold it long enough to approach more like the return on equity than necessarily uh, the initial earnings yield that you pay. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and I don't, we don't fit into any style box, even in the value world who want to either. Like, I think that that kind of constraint sometimes um, can, can blind you towards the more obvious opportunities. Like this game is already hard enough. Mm -hmm. I don't need to tie any more hands behind my back by saying, oh, we only buy low price to book and we don't care about business quality or vice versa. Uh, net, I would never buy net nets. Like those are a sucker's bet. Uh, I'm, I only buy high quality businesses. I don't really want to be in either one of those camps. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's kind of a dissatisfying answer, uh, but it's just trying to make sense of the world and the opportunity set at any given time and, and try to do what's smart. No, I mean, look, it's, this is your own discipline. Is Some people have the discipline of, okay, we're just in that camp. Your discipline is to say, look, we're going to stay open to any just the right opportunities. It sounds good, but then also, you know, when you, you take the guardrails off, uh, you can talk yourself into things. And I'm always a little careful about that as well. Like, am I making sure that, you, you know, you give the decree, you know, you allow these degrees of freedom to, to go where you think the value is. Well, nobody bought the dot-com stocks thinking that they were going to lose money, right? Like they all thought that they knew something special about it that no one else understood. Um, and obviously that didn't work out great for them in the late nineties or early 2000s. Um, so I am always cautious that I, you know, I'm to me, price is the most important thing. And the price level is price doesn't tell me what it's worth, but it does tell me what the assumptions are that everyone else is kind of imagining about this business. What are their future? I'm going to, I'm imputing what their future expectations are for this business based on the price. And do I agree with that or do, do I not? And, and for whatever reason, why do I think that I know something more than they do? Um, and it's a very arrogant thing to buy a stock because you're, you're in essence saying that person was wrong to sell it to me for that price. Mm. And, and conversely, it's very arrogant to sell it. I think I'm getting away with something and that the person buying it from me thinks they're getting over on me, right? So one of us is probably wrong or right, and maybe the time frame can be different, so we can both be right theoretically, but uh, or maybe even wrong both. <laughs> but <laughs> but it it is I try not to I try to keep humble at the same time as as allowing myself the degrees of freedom to to go where things make sense. Mm -hmm. 
And, and look, it, it could end up being a win-win situation if at the point when you're trying to buy versus when you're also trying to sell, you know, that especially when you're looking at small micro nano caps, you know, you, you could be in a situation where you're trying to sell it at a price you thought it's overvalued. But at that point for the, the buyer, they're thinking, well, I have a little bit of margin of safety because, you know, the price is here. They hit all these other metrics. So it, it could just, you know. Differences of opinion, yeah. A little, little positive spin on that twenty twenty, <laughs> but 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 in all seriousness, I mean, for for you, you know, this is a, a micro cap podcast. I, I have to ask, do you do you tend to look at any small micro nano cap opportunities as well? Yeah, um, some sometimes, um, depending on the the situation. Um, you know, we've owned some things that were under a hundred million market cap, um, and have done well in them actually. Like I've. Um, I I personally enjoy it and I think it's actually like probably where the advantage lies if you're a smaller investor. It doesn't always mean managing other people's money that you can do it as readily because the the quotational noise can be so extreme sometimes mm-hmm. that if your clients aren't prepared for that you, you can kind of that that horse can buck you off before you can realize the 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 good outcome that that you think you have a chance at realizing does that make sense oh a hundred percent i mean that that's that's what i hear time and time and again from a, a lot of fund managers asset managers is that you know even when even if they're smaller and more nimble it's still very difficult yeah and even i mean we're not managing a ton of money and the liquidity sometimes can be a real pain getting into and out of positions um across you know i mean you know, we have hundreds of accounts. It, you know, you're trying to get everyone a full allotment, um, and it can, you know, you could be the only buyer for days on end, um, and we've done that before. Uh, and then you're the only seller sometimes for days on end. It feels like, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a different world. It's one that I like, and I'm, I'm comfortable with it, but only in, I, I, not across probably the entire portfolio. Um, right. So, yeah, it's. Same thing. It's like, you know, just trying to do what makes sense. No, no, I totally get it. So, you know, and, and so, you know, because you have, you know, dabble, you know, in, in the small micro nano cap space management, I love asking all fund managers about, you know, how, how you guys tend to approach uh, talking with management, assessing management. So what's your approach? You know, do you, do you have your own Farnham Street method or are, do you actually tend to not even want to talk with them? Um. I don't mind talking with them, uh, and I we have, and you know, lots of times, and it's it's. Um, I don't know if it's always fruitful. Sometimes it feels like, listen, if you're at that level, you're a pretty good salesperson. You have to be to get to the CEO of any company, right? Um, and as the fund manager, who it will be being sold something at that point, like you just have to be aware. That, that you're dealing with someone who is a, a good salesman. So I think there is definitely the potential to fall for like halo effects where you think like, oh man, this guy is a, is a hidden gem. He's telling me everything that I want to hear. I think that that has to be backed up by what they do as well. And so what I try to do there is, is I do what I call like an, um, an empathy exercise. Mm-hmm. I, I, I look at their financial statements through, through history, their operating history and then I, I look and see like what would I have done if I were them in there? If I was in their shoes, what would I do at this juncture? Like I know what their stock is trading at, like as far as 
compared to the fundamentals, what did they do? Did they buy back or did they not? Did they issue shares? Did they do a dividend? Um, I, I try to put myself into their shoes uh, and, and to imagine what would I do. And the more that, that the answer comes back like, wow, I think I'd do the exact same thing that they, were, that they did, the more that I get, have confidence in that management. Um, and so it's not so much talking to them and what they say. I like to see their actions and their actions show up in the financials. Like that's the financials tell me a story. And and that's I could piece together then like what decisions were made at that point. Um, and I think that gives me a little bit of an insight into are they a good capital allocator or not? Mm-hmm. And look, not all these businesses can have a Mr. X on their board. I mean, that's just how it com- what it comes down to. Yeah, and I mean, I, I try to be sorry. That was a bad that as well. sorry. That was a bad joke. I... <laughs> no, no, I, I, no. It's actually a good point because I, I do try to fill that role occasionally, uh, and and talk to them about that, um, yeah. and say, you know, like looking at your different opportunities right now, you know, your stock is trading at at X right now. Do you think that you have internal reinvestment things that will have a higher hurdle than that? No, well, maybe we should think about buying back, you know, buying back our own restaurants to use the the concept from the book. Um, you know, it's it's just as valid as building new ones. Um, like, how are you acquiring those? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, I try to use some of the same principles uh, and give them um, a little bit of a some of my insights. I, you know, I I think. I, I liked the idea of sending them a copy of the book and like, hey, man, here's the playbook if you can. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if that works very well. Like, you know, no one wants to be have a book shoved on them in that way. Uh, but just pitch, you pitch it. Look, it's a quick read. Two hundred forty five pages. It's easy. You're not the knock it out in a week. Goes down very easy. Just listen to the <laughs> audio book at one and a half speed. You're fine. You knock it out in two hours. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I, I also wanted to mention that you also host uh, the 5GQ and the Hivecast podcast. You know, I, I wanted to know, what, what, what would you say are some of the lessons or insights that you've been able to apply to your own life and investing philosophy since starting those podcasts? Yeah, uh, I think, you know, the, the reason why I started both of those, um, well, one, for the five good questions, I... I wanted really to encourage people to read more books just because I'd gotten so much value out of reading books. Uh, and I think they're just, it's still such an underappreciated hack. Uh, maybe hack's not the right word, but the value proposition of a book, if you think about how much time someone put into it, and now I have a much more visceral appreciation for what that takes, having having finally written a book. The heart that you have to pour into it, like the way that you just stress over it, um, that much effort by a human who's an expert in a subject to distill what they know for you and you pay them even 15 bucks for a book, I mean, you're literally paying them like a penny an hour. I did the math one time. That like, you know, for how much that they worked on that book. Mm-hmm. It's unbelievable. Um, there are very few things that are a better value proposition. So I wanted people to to read more books. And, and the other part of it too was that I would watch somebody go on CNBC when they had a book coming out and just get talked over. And I would, it would drive me nuts. And I'd be like, he was just about to make a good point or she was just about to make a good point. Be quiet and let them get finished their thought. And I thought, well, you know, nowadays it's like 
it's pretty cheap. And this was 2014 when I started five good questions. Uh, you know, it's relatively cheap to produce these things. Um, why don't I give them the platform rather than me just complain about it? Why don't I do something about it? Um, so that was the impetus for starting five good questions. Uh, and with the high cast, I, I was just looking for, I wanted to spend more time outside really hanging out with friends and like wandering around in nature. <laughs> and this was a good excuse to like tell my wife that I was working, uh, when really I was just, you know, going out for a walk with, with a friend in the, in the woods and, uh, <laughs> having a chance to talk about, you know, a little bit deeper things in life. Um, and I, I found that nature, like for some reason, it really just like cuts through much more than if you're sitting around a table with a, you know, a microphone between you, 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 you don't measure your words as much and, and not in a, I mean that in a, like, I think you're a little bit more your authentic self when you're out on out hiking with a friend and you're just kind of, you know, there's, it's a little less, it's a little less of a hurried pace as well. And it's, I, I found it to be a very relaxing thing. And everybody who's done it now with me is like, God, I can't believe how much fun that was. Uh, I forgot that we were recording and I was like, perfect. That's exactly what I was looking for. Um, so that, those are the impetus behind both of those. They're really just more like kind of scratching my own itches, um, and, and a way to, to meet people and give back in ways. So, so by the way, I, I hope I haven't talked over you at once in this interview as a published author yourself. I, I'm, I don't think you've I been, you've been lovely. Oh, oh thank you. Thank goodness. Um, so, <laughs> so I, I have to ask them, you know, you've done five, five GQ since 2014, just started the high cast relatively recently. What were there, would you say, are there any kind of lessons or things that you pulled from those that you're oh, like, sorry, I didn't you know, answer the original No, no, you're, you're good. Yeah. It's fine. I should ask why first. <laughs> um, lessons I've learned, uh, I guess maybe from the hike cast, probably maybe the only lesson I've really learned is that we, we all kind of worried about the same things deep down. Um, and it, it can feel like, gosh, I'm the only one suffering from this right now, but I don't think that's true. I think we all have the same sort of existential questions. We all have the, um, we all have that sometimes feeling like, God, everyone else has their S together and, uh, and, and I don't, and what am I doing? And does anybody even care what I'm working on? Um, and it, we're all kind of, I feel like we're toiling in obscurity a lot of times and, and it's okay. Like we're all, we're all in it together. We just kind of don't realize it because no one wants to talk about it. Right. It's like, we're all, we're all in the process of fighting the good fight and we just are all going about it our own way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think sometimes we, our culture celebrates work a little bit too much um and the hustle and the grind and listen i'm all for like figuring out what you're passionate about and giving it your all and um and even burning the the ships behind you to to have to fight your way out of it but but this fetish is you know fetization or fetishization how do you say that i'm not sure um you of, said that was a better guess than me <laughs> uh you know we fetishize hard work uh in a way that i think sometimes can only lead to unhappiness for us because we just become so monolithic in our, in how we spend our time. Um, and so, you know, taking projects like I have, I kind of do it on purpose too, to control my own time a little bit and like force me to go outside, force me to read books that maybe I wouldn't have come across otherwise. Um, so it's all my actions are just as selfish as they are <laughs> for giving back. Um, I just try not to, I try to emphasize the other part, you know, that it's more about giving back, <laughs> but there's always something in it for me as well. If I'm being honest, 
Hey, look, I mean, when it comes to charity or giving back, I mean, ultimately there is a, there has to be a little bit of selfishness there in order to, because I mean, we, we could go on a whole tangent on this, but is, yeah. is there any altruism? True, yeah. Well, is there any true selfless act like true hundred percent? I think there'd be many philosophers out there that would argue that there isn't, but that's okay. As far as, uh, things learned from five good questions, um, I would say that the it's been amazing to see how into something whatever the topic is that someone can get mm -hmm. so i did this interview of a guy who's a uh he's like what i think they call it like entomologist which is like studies bugs mm -hmm. and he could talk for an hour and it would be just absolutely fascinating about bugs like insects uh spiders all kinds of stuff like he lives for it and what i, I what i realized is that everybody has their version of bugs in their life. Mm -hmm. So when you, if you, you're talking to someone or you're at a party or whatever it is, and you're, you're talking to them and you're like, gosh, this person is boring. Like they, I need to find someone else to talk to. You just haven't quite worked hard enough to find out what their bugs are. And when you do, you'll be amazed at how they open up and teach you things and have all these insights that you had no idea was, were floating around in their head. Um, and I, I think we're all sometimes a little bit guilty of wanting to only like talk to the what you perceive as like the highest status person at a party or, or whatever it is um, or a conference. But there are lots of smart people who know tons of things all around you at all times if you're just curious enough to to dig into like find what their bugs are. I got to tell you, that's like my go to move. You know, you're at a party or you don't know anybody. I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, you just if you truly care and you know it, especially if you know you're going to be at that party for a while, you mm -hmm. know, <laughs> why not ask them? So what's your thing, man? What do you like? What's your, you know, and you'll realize that it'll, you might learn something new about a topic that you had no idea. Or at the end of the day, at least it was an interesting conversation where you heard somebody be passionate about something, you know? Yeah. That's, and so, that's I mean, fun. some people hide their thing a little bit further away from the world is so you have to dig a little bit more right. but everybody has something if you dig enough and it could just take a little bit of time but it's almost almost universally it's worth the that extra couple of shovelfuls of dirt of small talk if you can find the thing that sets them on fire luckily my thing is just asking questions so that that make, makes it easy <laughs> that's a beautiful thing like i i read somewhere i don't know where it came from but it was um if you go through life pretending that everyone has a as a sign on them that says, I want to feel special, and then just like read it and see like, oh, I wonder how I could do to make them feel special today. Like I think you could go through life in like a lot of the friction of life that is that that befalls on us. Uh, you might be able to avoid it if you if you went through life with that I, that kind of a approach. I tend to go through life very much like chance and say I'm an idiot. You know, let me just ask a whole bunch of questions and hopefully I get a little bit smarter. I think that's a good approach. I think uh, a Socratic method is uh, is is not a bad idea. It, it's got me this far, I guess, you know, <laughs> we'll see. But uh, so, so my favorite, one of my favorite questions to ask everybody that I have on here is uh, what, what would you say is an investing experience that was the most influential for you, both to your current thesis and maybe just maybe the most influential one that you've had throughout your whole life? Sure. Um, so fast, let's re rewind back to like 2010, 2011. And 
um, we'd been running the fund for a little while and you know, you're, when you're young and you're still early on, it's hard not to have that little bit of imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. You know, you're kind of just copying what other people are doing. It makes sense to you what they're doing, but you, you don't have that like deep in your bones conviction necessarily. It takes a little while to get to that. And I went to a different fund manager who I t really looked up to, um, really big influence, uh, went to his annual meeting and he had been buying similar things that we had been buying in Japan. Mm. And I was like, it was like the great confirmation bias. Like, Oh man, we're in there. And this, you know, he's doing it too. We're so smart. Uh, even I saw, I actually saw Buffett, uh, on CNBC during that time period. And he had on his desk, this, this little book that has a pink cover on it. And I recognized it because it's the Moody's manual for Japan. And he had been fishing around in his private account, uh, buying Japanese stuff. So I was like, oh man, we're so smart. We're like on top of it. And then the next year, go back to that same meeting and the fund manager had sold all of his Japanese stuff and had come up with, uh, some, had pulled some quote, I think from Graham about how it, uh, why this didn't make sense anymore. Uh, you know, don't, you shouldn't be wasting time with these, you know, businesses that are so cheap. He had this quote from Graham that had was about how, you know, buying these something that cheap and not high enough quality business didn't make sense. And he had sold all of them. And it, it, did, it made no sense to us because it was the it was the cheapest thing on the planet at that point. And we came back from the meeting and actually bought a bunch of more. We doubled down. And it wasn't maybe six months later they just started going up like crazy. I don't know why there was no real good reason, but just like there was no good reason why they were so cheap anymore, it doesn't take a good reason for them not to be cheap anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that, you know, they're just jumping every day. And, uh, that was the first time that I felt like, okay, I have the confidence to do this. I confidence in myself, the conviction when I believe in something to, to double down when it makes sense. I don't need someone else's approval or their validation for it to make sense. Um, and that, that was, I think when I actually became a real investor before that I was pretending. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, other than buying the rebel allocator, what, what advice would you give for to right now to new investors looking at investing in the stock market? Are these uh, are these people who are just trying to build wealth? Or are they interested in in business and all ownership? The, let's say all the above. Okay, well let's let's carve out the person who's not interested in investing but just wants to save money and build wealth. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's an unpopular opinion amongst value investors anymore these days, but probably indexing is their best bet. I will caveat that by saying it's probably never been a worse time to index based mm -hmm. on the general price levels. Um, but if you started dripping money in today and you kept buying as it was going down and buying and buying and you buy it, bought all the way through the dip and all the way back up and you just kept buying for the next 20, 30 years, I think you'll do fantastic. Um, and you can golf and do all the other things that you want to be doing instead of researching businesses and save a ton of time. Uh, and that's, there's nothing wrong with that. However, if you are interested in business uh, and you actually want to, you know, make individual stock selection, then I think the biggest thing that you can do to improve your chances are a couple things. One, you have to keep score for yourself. So 
That includes getting a journal, writing down your predictions about what's going to happen, keep score, figure out where the arrow actually landed, and don't go paint the bullseye around afterward. We're all guilty of this to different degrees. Uh, We all think that, oh yeah, I knew that that was going to happen. Well, unless you wrote it down, you probably actually didn't know it was going to happen. We like, we trick ourselves all the time. Uh, So keep score with yourself. That's, you have to close that feedback loop of where you made mistakes. Otherwise you're much more likely to just keep making the same mistakes over and over again. Um, The second thing would be that I I think you have to read widely. Uh, And if you're just reading all the other books that everyone else is reading, the chances that you're going to have a variant perception about a business are exceedingly small. And if, if you don't have a variant perception, then you don't really get paid that much in this game. It's when you want, you have to be right when everyone else was wrong and then you have to have them agree with you later. Right. And that's, that's the trick to winning in this game. Um, If everyone else also recognizes that this, whatever it is, is a good business and that's already priced into it, you don't have any real unique insight paying up for that business. That's not really how this how this game works. (laughs) And I think that unfortunately happens a lot where like, oh, I use Netflix all the time or I use Google all the time or whatever company that you have a lot of experience with and you feel like, oh, well, I, I know this company well, maybe you do, but there's a lot more behind that than just, you know, like I have an iPhone, therefore Apple is a great investment. Like there's so much between those the disconnect between those two things that you have to fill in with more understanding. Um, and you have to understand more than the other people who are buying. Um, and that that is a difficult place to get to without a lot of work and without a lot of reading widely. Um, the other thing that I would say is that 50 years ago, any information that you had more than the other person was a huge advantage. And so whoever had the most information tended to win the game. So if you look at like how, how Buffett got successful early on, you know, he's digging around in city filings of, you know, different companies, things that they had to report to a county or a city or a state that weren't reported to anywhere else. Like mm-hmm. no one else was getting that information or he's, you know, taking cocoa beans on the, you know, tickets down the train somewhere placed to, to arbitrage. He's doing all these things. He had an informational advantage. Nowadays, information is so far. It's a flood. Like we all have more information than we can use. Now having the right filters is the right, is how you win this game. And, uh, Jim Chanos had a pretty good analogy about this. He, he calls it, like like you're peeling the layers of an onion and at the very base of the onion the inside of it is the actual sec filings and that's where you should probably be spending most of your time that's where the highest signal to noise ratio is Mm -hmm. then outside of that you have companies uh annual reports and their conference calls and anything else that they publish and now that's a little bit diluted from sec filings because there's a little bit of story to it like they're telling you a story there's some spin now we move outside of that layer to sales side research and, uh, you know, different different reports, other investors versions of what this company's worth and their pitch decks, all that kind of stuff. And that's a that's a further abstraction away from that core of the SEC filings. And then finally, you get to the outside and that's like message boards and Twitter and stock tips and all the, the noise. I, I would challenge you to think about where are you spending most of your time? 
in the onion? Are you spinning it down where like the, the highest signal is? Or are you out in the, the Twitter sphere and that's where you're getting most of your information and that's where you're, uh, you're not doing a good job of filtering information at that point then. Mm-hmm. So those would be my, my recommendations to a young, uh, young investor. That's perfect. Well, with that, where can my audience go and find more information about you and go and buy their copy of The Rebel Allocator? Uh, so Al, uh, the Rebel Allocator is on Amazon, uh, print, digital, audiobook, um, and thankfully I found someone who can who can read the book uh, better than my nasally voice, so you don't have to worry about that. Um, and then uh, the as far as Farnham Street goes, like we're line at Farnham-Street.com, uh, and then <laughs> against everything I just said about you know don't waste your time on Twitter, I'm on Twitter at. Uh, <laughs> at Farnham Jake one, I believe is my, my handle. Uh, I, I spend probably a little bit too much time there. Um, uh, but it's, but it, it does serve it's a fun. good purpose and like, it's fun and you meet some amazing people as well. Yeah. And it, you know, finding your tribe is also an important thing in the world. And it is one of the better ways to find a tribe. Uh, and it, especially if you can meet people in real life, eventually, uh, it's, it's, it's actually a pretty big, pretty useful tool. You just have to be careful with it and not let it let it let it rule your life and it, it is addicting so you have to be care- like you know be careful with the with the heroin there, there's yeah there's <laughs> definitely been times where I've, I've deleted it from my phone just like okay just you know when you're on your computer then maybe but it's it, you know what it's i agree it's a great tool I mean, that's how i found out about you and rebel allocator and uh yeah i'm just i'm so stoked you took the time to to spend with us here and, and provide some insights on both the book and what you got going on at Farnham Street and just what you got going on uh, from your own personal experiences. And uh, dude, thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Well, and I, I really appreciate uh, as someone who also asks questions and in interviews, like I appreciate all the thoughtful questions. I thought that was uh, really well done. Thank you. Thank you all for tuning into the Planet Microcap podcast. And thank you, Jake, again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going out to stockingdown.com under podcast. Go to podbean.com and search Planet Microcap podcast or on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube and search Planet Microcap Podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap Podcast where we'll have our next guest to discuss all things microcap. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at snnwire.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This, pro- this podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of StockingDown.com, the official microcap news source, and the Microcap Review Magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap Podcast. Have a great week, everyone. Thank you.